if you're stuck about how to start something, you've just actually got to start. How do I? Where do I? What should I? How? And, and actually, the thing is actually to start. And even if you start completely the wrong way, you will start immediately learning. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Walbin, and this is episode 86 with Jonathan Avery. I'm really excited because this is the first show where I'm going to be answering a recorded listener question. And the question came from Alex related to what tiny house resources and workshops are available in her country of Scotland. And so that's what led me to Jonathan Avery and Tiny House Scotland. And Jonathan is a really talented builder who has developed a whole system for building tiny homes. There is the Nest Pod and the Nest House, and this is a movable modular system. Uh, The designs and the carpentry and the finishes are absolutely gorgeous. And we really get into his philosophy on design and just the details of the house. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I think you will too. And don't forget, if you have a question about today's episode or anything you hear on the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, head over to thetinyhouse.net slash ask, where you can record a question for the show. Before we get started with that conversation, I'd like to tell you about my weekly newsletter called the Tiny Tuesdays Newsletter. It comes out, well, every Tuesday, and it's a roundup of everything that I've been writing, producing, and reading about the tiny house movement in the past week. Each newsletter includes the latest episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle podcast, any new blog posts or articles that I've published, and also news stories that I'm tracking in the tiny house movement that I want to share with you. It's super helpful and informative, and it's completely free. To sign up, head over to thetinyhouse.net slash quiz, where you can take the quiz to find out what type of tiny house you are. After you've taken the quiz, you'll be automatically signed up to receive the Tiny Tuesdays newsletter every Tuesday. I can't wait to share my latest thinking with you, and I hope you'll sign up for the Tiny Tuesdays newsletter at thetinyhouse.net slash quiz. Right, I am here with Jonathan Avery. Jonathan founded Tiny House Scotland in February of 2014 and has designed two forms of tiny houses, the Nest House, which is a movable modular system, and the Nest Pod, which has its own road-going trailer. Jonathan is a designer craftsman with over 30 years experience, and he designs and builds two to three unique tiny houses or living wagons a year to client commission. He calls his work the fine art of movable micro-architecture. Jonathan Avery, welcome to the show. Hi, Ethan. Lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you as well. I'm glad the time zones worked out and we've determined that the weather in Scotland and the weather in Vermont are basically the same. The same at the moment, yes. (laughs) So I was wondering if you could just start by telling me the story of of how you got interested in tiny houses and and became a, a builder in the first place. Okay. Um, oh wow. Well, it's a long story, so I'll try and I'll try and pot it for you. Um, I guess that it started with me, really, as as an influence in architecture generally. I've always been interested in art, architecture and design. Um, 
I went down quite a, an unconventional route at university, after university, having done botany and ecology um, and being very interested in ecology. Um, and then I decided I wanted to be a photographer and I became a photographer and, and kind of dropped out of an MSc in ecology. Uh, they said they'd hold the place open for me and I ended up uh, starting out as a photographer in London. Um, I did that for five years and then I started, during that time I was doing a lot of graphic design as well. Um, and I then ended up wanting to put my practical skills to good use. I was brought up with a dad who, if we needed something making, whether it was a new kitchen or a, a garage or something like that, he would, he would go and buy the stuff and he would build it. And from an early age, I saw no, no barriers to kind of doing what you wanted to do. So that was kind of my grounding on that. And as a, as a hobbyist, as a kid, I did a lot of model railways and things like that. So, you know, I've been wiring up electrics and stuff like that from a very early age, illegally, but, you know, that's the way it goes. Um, and so I guess my, de my design interests extended into um, building furniture. And so after doing about five years in London as a photographer and graphic designer, I'd already started designing prototypes for lighting and furniture. Um, and then we, my wife and I, by that stage, I was 29, 30, I guess. And we moved up to the Scottish borders to a cottage in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Um, and I decided then that I would start building furniture. And you know how it is. You, you, you kind of work your way through ideas and prototypes and f trying to find clients. It was, it was extremely hand to mouth and extremely precarious. I would get six months work and then I wouldn't work for six months. And um, gradually, bit by bit, that kind of developed eventually. And it grew over a period of 20 years from me being on my own as a, as a lone craftsman to having a, a business where we employed 20 people and had a workshop and three retail stores um, with an idea that that was just going to keep on growing, really. Um, how do we get to tiny houses? So eventually the banking crisis of 2008 <laughs> and 2009 caught up with all of that. Um, we lost the support of our bank. They, they were failing anyway, and we ended up having a complete change of life. We backed out of the business we were in bit by bit, um, moved to where we are now, which is called Shangri-La Farm, which is a small holding of seven acres. And I went completely back to the land, planted three and a half thousand trees um, and kind of rebuilt myself, really. Um, so all of that skill and all of that stuff I'd learned over the years, the, the influence of architecture, um, the hand making furniture to a high level, all came together with one day, I think it was, my wife saw a Facebook uh, reference to tumbleweed. And, and that was kind of doing the rounds, I think, on Facebook at the time. And I saw one of these little houses and I thought, wow, that actually completely answers all my requirements in life, basically, in terms of I love architecture. I love building things. I love the small, cute size of it. Um, 
and that really was what started me off. And I, and I think um, I just, having done lots of property renovations as well, I always had this urge to build a house. And indeed, when we moved here, it was the land we were interested in and I was going to build a house for us. In the end, that hasn't happened yet um, because I've got involved in building tiny houses. Um, the other thing that kind of went hand in hand with that was that I've always been incredibly interest in, interested in the physics, the building science side of things in terms of energy efficiency. I remember going to um, an exhibition in London when I was a kid. It was a school trip where we went to London and I wish I could remember the name of it. I don't know now, but it, it, we're talking here about maybe 1975. And there was a big energy exhibition on with, with things on display like Salter's ducks, the, the nodding um, wave generators and the first um, wind generators and all this kind of thing, photovoltaics in a very early form. So from that day forth, I'd had a huge interest in all of that as well. And this was the other appeal with tiny houses because you're then bringing together all of those elements um, to create a whole package. And I suppose I, I then imagined this Armageddon scenario where if it was all you had left was a tiny house um, to survive with, instead of, the, instead of the way that we're brought up and what we're used to expecting in our lives. But if you had this as a survival mechanism, I, I started on the prototype to build it that way, which is what birthed the nest house, if you like. Um, which, which I'm sitting in at the moment. Um, it's incredibly warm, it's super insulated. Um, it uses a lot of passive house principles in the building. It, um, has a, it has a good solar gain. I'm facing south at the moment, although we're, we're just getting to the limits of that at this time of year in terms of um, the heating season is possibly starting soon. Um, so I tried that out to find out whether I could build something that I would actually like to be in. I hasten to add, I don't live in it full time, Ethan. <laughs> this is my office in my show house where I have meetings with my clients. But um, so that's a long way to answer your <laughs> straightforward question. Well, it's a good it's a good answer. And it's it's always interesting to me to hear how people find their way here. And you kind of made me think that tiny houses really are the full package of furniture building and architecture and electrical and plumbing and just so yeah. many skills yeah. that they can, you know they certainly you, can be you don't necessarily have to do all of those yourself as a DIY yeah. builder but you know if you are so inclined they provide a really great creative outlet for for problem solving and i suppose this is where um the, the way i because i've put let's put it this way i guess if if i was doing what i'm doing now 15 years ago I would have been employing people and building a bigger business. The potential is there to do that. Whereas my thinking these days is completely different. I, I'm, I'm really into the idea of being a, a sustainable craftsperson, able to generate the income that I need and work on my own and to be able to treat what I do as my art, basically. Every project I do, I really do put blood, sweat and tears into it and give a well, hopefully a really super level of service to my customer. And, and everything that I build is, is unique. I, will, I, will, I don't build the same thing twice, really, because in design, well, you don't really, do you? Each customer has their own requirement. 
Um, but I think over that time I've developed, I've developed a look that I enjoy and a way of working. As it happens, I do everything myself. I don't, I don't even use subcontracted trades for anything. I do all my own plumbing, electrics, gas, a lot. I've even taught myself like uh, standing seam roofing, uh, metal roofing as well, um, just because I can, because you can explore all of these amazing crafts and trades and work with amazing materials. And that's all part of the inspiration of, of producing this. Nice. Well, I want to learn more about the Nest House and, and the modular system. Um, could you explain how that works? There's, there, is there a central module that you then can attach other pieces to? Or, or how does that work? And how does it work for clients who want one? Okay, so um, I guess I guess yes. There's a central module which is called the live module. Um, that can be roughly between. Um, so we're talking about something which is three point four meters wide, and they increment at one point two meter lengths. I know this is all the wrong, the wrong units. For it's you. fine. We can challenge. We'll challenge people. They can. They can look <laughs> it up. I work in both, so I can do both for you. Um, so the, I guess the basic unit is a 4.8 unit or a 3.6 unit or a 1.2 meter unit. That's too small. Okay. So going up to maybe, uh, where would I go? Maybe six meters, 7.2 meters max. That live module is basically going to do your living room and kitchen. Um, and then there are additional modules, which will handle like an entrance porchway. So you come in, you take off your hat and coat and boots, um, have extra storage in that. Then there's a bathroom module. Above that, there is typically a, a sleep loft. Um, and then the, the, the idea can expand in the sense that you could have one joined to another module, which is perhaps your studio. So if you are a, an artist working from home, you could live in one module, work in the other one, and have a linking module between them. Whether that's a breezeway or a or a roofed a roofed module, but they can be linked together. So, are they built? They're built separately, and that's what makes them modular. They would be. They would be built separately. Obviously, the the modular thing, I suppose, for the nest house is a conceptual thing in that you're assembling the modules conceptually to start with to to fit a particular need for the for the customer. But they can, they can, I suppose, be conjoined later in in one form. And are they they're built at your site and then transported to the client? Absolutely right. Yes. The idea with all of this, because I like where I am and where I work, and I don't want, don't particularly want to go and work on site. So to me, the best of all worlds is that I can build a finished product here, and it goes to the client ready, ready finished. With all the advantages, you know, that we know modular building has in that you're you're working in controlled conditions. You're able to build to higher tolerances. Um, you're delivering a finished product. You're not delivering something to site, which then needs another month's work or two months' work with different tradesmen coming to it. So that that's my that's the idea, really. It's a it's a plug and play solution once it gets to site. It's it's very smart, um, and I will post photos with your permission on the show yeah, notes page. Absolutely. For the episode, um, this will be episode eighty-six, so it'll be the tinyhouse.net slash zero eight six. We'll bring you to that page. 
um, are the are the modular pieces stacked lengthwise, or can they be side to side as well? So they they're basically in in a longitudinal plane, I suppose. But then, if you have a second module or a second nest house as part of the setup, say it's your studio or say it's an additional living module, then it can be at an obtuse angle, or it can be in line, or it could be at ninety degrees. So. I mean, what we're dealing with here is the, the concept of a caravan. Basically, everything is a caravan in the sense that it's movable. It is or isn't on wheels. Um, for planning law in the UK, anyway, that's one of the key, the key, key elements. Okay. And I want to get to all that legality okay. in a little bit. So in your bio, you, you mentioned that you're building about two to three of these either nest pods or nest houses per year. How far out? What what's the wait list like? Um, oh wow, it it varies and it goes up and down quite rapidly. The one thing I have come to realize with tiny houses is that, and it's probably the same in any property based business. Let me think. I have had this month three promises of a start of work, which have all all gone. Well, no, two of them have gone pear shaped through various. A divorce situation or a planning situation or a finance situation, they crop up all the time. As of today, as it stands, I'm booked up till 2021. But as I say, I only build two or three a year. And that's deliberate, really. A, because that's how long it takes me to build one. Between four and six months, depending on the level of finish, say, for an S-pod. But also because I will then typically have a month off before I start another one. Um, I kind of don't do what I do just for the money. I'm very, I'm very lucky being slightly later in life than a, a young spring chicken like you in this. I'm not, I'm not f- forced to earn money anymore, but I have a passion for what I do. So therefore it's nice to keep it going and, and have that continuity. But yeah, that's, that's where I am right now. I am, I'm building a nest pod at the moment. And then I've got another two three lined up after that. Excellent. Well, it's it's clear that you know that passion and the love of what you're doing it it comes through in the buildings. Thank you. And I'm I'm excited for people to to check them out and see them if if they haven't. And so I actually uh, have recently started accepting questions from listeners, you know, call-in questions and um, I got a question from someone named Alex, and I was hoping you could help me answer it. Okay. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and play it. Uh, hopefully people will be able to hear it. So just give me a sec. Hi, I would like to know more about how to build one of these tiny houses in my garden in Scotland. And I wonder if there's anybody that is going to think about or is currently doing workshops, maybe weekend long workshops that could help with the basics, uh, just to get me started. Thank you. Okay. All right. So it sounds like Alex is maybe a DIY, interested in DIYing a tiny house. And, um, you know, what what resources are out there in Scotland for for people who want to build? I mean, to be honest, not a lot. <laughs> um, I would probably push her in your direction, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, 
you know, it's probably very difficult for you guys in North America to get any kind of perspective on where tiny houses are in the rest of the world. It's difficult for people in the U.S. to get perspective <laughs> on anything. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. Um, in the six years that I've been involved specifically in the tiny houses, I, I've seen changes. I mean, I've seen, I've seen changes about what's happening stateside with you. I'm, I'm very aware now that there are hundreds more builders than there were five years ago. Professional builders, I mean. Um, in, in Europe, I see massive changes there from the first, first one or two that popped up in France. And now France, Germany, the Netherlands, there is an active tiny house um, professional building market with new companies coming to the market all the time. Um, I mean, the one thing I love about the tiny house movement, as, as it is in America, is that you do have that ethos of self-building. And I, and I, you know, always having been a self-starter myself and a, a self-teacher and someone who just went and got on with what they wanted to do, I, I do think that is a fundamental wonderful trait to have in life to be able to actually get on and and not to see barriers to things you know one of my one of my absolute heroes in all of this who's kind of sort of linked to the tiny house movement or has a finger in it as well be lloyd khan from shelter publications and uh, i've seen lloyd over here he did a talk over here a couple of years ago um and you know one of the things that i always read in, in one of his books and actually, the nest house has been in one of his books, has been in small homes, which I'm very proud of. But, you know, Lloyd said, if, if you're stuck about how to start something, you've, you've just actually got to start. You know, you can, you can, some people do pursue endlessly. How do I? Where do I? What should I? How? And, and actually, the thing is actually to start. And even if you start completely the wrong way, you will start immediately learning. And I think it, he really brought home that immediacy of, of actually getting stuck in and doing it. I've never had that problem myself because I'm, I'm a bit of a maverick and a bit of a free thinker, I suppose. So it always came very naturally to me as a slightly autistic person that I would plunge in and do something and see no barriers. But I think some people need to be told that. I think some people need to be told that actually don't wait for the rules. Don't wait for, the, for someone to tell you you can, or to show you the right way you can do something. Because let's face it, there are so many ways you can do it. And so no one has a de facto answer to that. So, so my, my thought is always just plunge in and do it. Okay, you have to research and you have to look at what's out there. There are resources. There's so much on the internet. I'm, I'm kind of caught in an awkward situation with inquiries like this because I do get a lot of people email me through the website. Um, and I do find... There are an awful lot of people who they, they, they see the potential immediately in the vision of a tiny house and think, can see how it could potentially solve some of their issues in life, whether that's an, an affordability issue or of actually living somewhere nice as opposed to living in squalid conditions or whatever. The thing I find is that 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 initial reaction is, is potentially a long way from being able to realize the solution. And it brings in so many complications that people who aren't doing it every day as a professional have no idea about yet where the funding is going to come from, where they're going to put it, is it legal? 
Can they get insurance for it? How are they actually going to build it? What's the best way to build? And I guess what I've done over the, over the time I've been involved is that working the way I do and working on my own, I've had to kind of um, clamp down on a lot of the free information in the sense that I tend to, I, I, my, my general route for someone is to come and have a consultation with me, which is a two to three hour, usually three hour plus sit down consultation to talk through what they want to achieve and what solutions are out there in, in order to achieve it. That's generally, of course, if they want me to build something for them. Although I have done it for self-builders as well, but equally I think that puts me in a difficult position because there is a liability issue there insurance-wise. I have professional insurance as a tradesman, but you have to be careful what you advise people to do and what they then go off and... Um, I mean, I sell, I sell trailers for self-build, for example. Right. Um, so people can actually buy a trailer from me exactly like I use for my nest pods. But I, I have a, you know, a health warning with those that what you do with it is totally up to you. It's, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I would say that it, it sounds like there aren't any people running workshops how to build a tiny house, but I'm not sure if there's anything. We have in the States an organization called Habitat for Humanity that builds, builds houses for, for low-income people and people yeah. in need. and you can volunteer for Habitat, for example, and at least get some of those hands-on skills. I mean, many yeah, people have yeah. never framed a wall before. Absolutely. Another option would be, I'm not sure if there's, you know, a group of enthusiasts or, you know, some kind of tiny house interest group, but to put it out there and say, is anybody building DIY right now? Can I come and help and just watch? I mean, there certainly are. There are a couple of um, community pages on Facebook where people are doing that for the UK. Um, and the other one that I know down in Bristol at the moment, there is, there is a group called Tiny House Bristol. And they're actually looking at doing a community, community-led initiative to build tiny houses. And they're getting support from their local council to do that. The other thing I should mention, of course, is that I was involved in the Social Bite uh, Tiny House Village in Edinburgh, which I think three years ago they approached me after I designed the Nest House prototype um, because they were looking for a housing model for this village concept. So Josh Littlejohn um, started this social enterprise about six or seven years ago now. And they run it through coffee shops in various cities in Scotland where they employ about 30, 40, 50% of their staff are homeless people. But then they also have, uh, they're also, and obviously they're a nonprofit because they're, a, they're a, a, a community enterprise. And they have clever ideas like layaways. So if you go in and buy your morning coffee, you can put one aside for someone who's homeless as well while you do that. But Josh had this idea of actually trying to drive the very difficult homeless problem in Scotland towards a solution which we could help in a better way. So he came up with the village idea, having excellent support from Edinburgh Council themselves, who had development land that they could effectively lend us or lease, lease in for the short term. 
So that has been running for about 18 months now, and there are 11 nest houses on that site in Edinburgh, uh, two bedroom nest houses, a nest house duo, together with um, a hub building, which is a community hub where they learn skills communally, they cook and eat communally, as well as having their own, their own house with a buddy system running in there, and they have carers 24-7 on site. So, and I think actually they've just, they just announced last month that they had moved through their first six community members onto full-time housing from, from being in there. So, um, and you know, it's interesting, Ethan, because when, when we did that, and I have to stress that wasn't just me involved in that, I, I did the design concept for them, but there were hundreds of companies in Scotland contributed their time and their products towards that project. Um, which was an amazing community effort. The, the interesting thing is while we were doing it, we had offers from a lot of people to get involved and volunteer. The, the, the trouble that we find is that the health and safety side of things often makes this very difficult. The, the houses themselves were professionally built. We weren't in a situation where we could let people come on site and teach them framing and get them framing within a couple of days and, and actually learn the skills on the job. So that is often a lot of the problem these days as far as I'm sure you probably have the same. Do you have the same issues of health and safety? In terms of teaching, letting people work on a build? Yeah. I mean, this, that's the thing, isn't Absolutely. it? It's, safety is, is paramount these days. Yeah. And that's what I've seen is that a lot of the tiny house education out there has moved away from being hands-on just because it is so difficult to get the insurance to do it and also just to ensure people's safety. Because really, I mean, there's a reason why it's hard to get insurance to hand amateurs a chop saw and have them go up on ladders. It's because it's dangerous. And and we have, I mean, I've seen... um... Wonderful schemes like with the WikiHouse. WikiHouse did a community-led one in Edinburgh where literally 20 people just rolled up that morning and were handling routers and things like that within a few hours and, you know, all arguing over how, how best to build something. I mean, it can be a, you know, I couldn't handle that myself as a pro because you have to, you have to think very carefully about what you're doing. But, um, but then how do you get people to learn? You know, it's a, it is a difficult thing. Sure. Well, I also wanted to ask you, um, I don't want don't to keep you all day here. I'm sure you're busy. Um, what is the current legal landscape in the UK for, for tiny homes? You mentioned before that it all has to be a caravan. And um, explain what that is. Well, so, and again, I could probably, I could probably fill your airwaves with about three hours worth here. Um, in a nutshell, and it's and it's a very grey, grey-edged, uh, grey area, I would say. Um, in our planning system, until you get to a domestic house, the only other things that exist are outbuildings or annexes, sheds, if you like, um, garden shed or whatever. You know. Um, however, there is before you get to a house you can have a caravan. And something which is a caravan is movable. So for planning purposes, it's, it's a movable, potentially temporary accommodation. Um, 
rather funnily, there are various um, parameters that accompany those, those sort of planning laws in the sense of there are size parameters associated with that. I don't know whether you have them in the States on your trailer parks, but we have these things called static caravans, which are generally a huge rectangular box, a giant shoe box. Yeah, we might call them park model RVs. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly the, that's exactly the one. And they, they vary in size from 12, 14 feet wide, and they go up to 40 odd feet wide. And the planning law says you can actually have two of those side by side together to form one dwelling. And actually, in the UK, you can have a size that would roughly be equivalent of a normal bungalow or single story dwelling. What I'm trying to say is they can be huge, but because they're removable and they, they come to site on wheels and they can be moved on site, um, they can, they can, you can clear the site and leave no trace of anything. So that's, where the, that's kind of where we open the door on that. The, the interesting thing is that they were kind of developed in the late 50s and 60s. And the planning law that went with them was very rudimentary. Also around about that time, they developed um, a British standard, which was kind of encompassing the construction of them, the advised construction of them. That has had a few reiterations over the years. The latest one was 2015, where they finally added some insulation into the uh, into the process but generally those those as a as a module um, are fairly lightweight fairly skimpy poorly insulated and are not usually used as a as or intended as a permanent housing situation but sometimes they become one and so we have holiday parks where they have these things and and sometimes people live there 11 months of the year Again, you get into all the rules and regulations of what they do for the other month and whether the, you know, whether the owner allows them to stay there or doesn't kind of thing. So this all illustrates the idea of a caravan. It's trying to break out of the situation where whatever you build on a piece of land is, con constitutes development. And development is what the planning authorities are interested in. Are you going to make money out of what you build? Is it something that you build which then sells for more money at, late, at a later stage, et cetera? And, and does it impinge on your neighbors? Are you blocking their view? Are you taking their light? Is it a meter away from them, et cetera, et cetera? So that's where the planning thing comes in. Um, we can get into extremely contentious issues here in terms of my feelings, for example, for individual freedom that you should be able to buy a plot of land yourself and if you have a plot of land i would like to think you could live in whatever you whether it was a, a giant plastic bag if you thought that suited you or you know whether it was a garden shed that was enough for you or um, a tiny house of course or you build a conventional house you should really be able to do what you like in that in that space unfortunately it doesn't quite work that way and the planning law, um, the upshot of all of that, I guess, is that if the law kind of says that if you, if you live anywhere permanently as your main residence, then you should have planning permission for that. So then it's all about change of use of that land. What was the land beforehand? Was it farmland? Was it greenfield? Was it, is it somebody's garden? Is it being converted into a new use to form a dwelling? Are you living in that dwelling full time? 
None of which I don't have any straight answers to any of this. It all depends on your local planning authority. And it's interesting how I have perceived this to be adopted in other countries, for example, in France and the Netherlands, where they do seem to be getting on with tiny houses. I know that in France, for example, if my understanding is correct, you can literally talk to the local mayor in your, in your village or town. And if he says it's okay, it's okay. Whereas you wouldn't get away with that in Britain. That wouldn't happen in Britain. Your, your, planning, your planning authority would, would have to give you planning permission. So that means you've got to make an application. There have to be certain size criteria. Absolutely. And this is the thing. Now, I guess what I prefer, my approach, and, and I suppose in a way it, to try and take from what you've done in st- certain parts of the States, I, I think I'm right in saying that basically what you've done is gone out and done them anyway. And in certain locales, you've, you've, the, the local authority has to kind of catch up with, well, hang on, six people have built these now. What are we going to do about it? And I'm sure I read somewhere about a situation where people who had the tiny houses were saying to the local council, you know, you, you're actually pretending to be a really eco-friendly council, and yet you're not allowing us to do this, which is really sustainable and eco-friendly. So I think you can beat them at their own game. But possibly the only way you do that is by first actually doing it. It's almost like what we were saying before about when you want to start your project, just start it. Don't wait for permission. I'm not, I'm not advocating lawlessness in any sense of the word, of course. I just mean that in, in the same way, in the odd way that these static caravans came about in the 60s and developed their own law and they were accepted and they're accepted now as a type, even though they're horrible ugly boxes which deteriorate very quickly in the landscape. In order to, to replace that with something more acceptable, like my nest house, for example, where it doesn't deteriorate in that form and it, and it looks charming as it is, someone has to actually do it. So I don't think that answers the question, but it's, it's an incredibly difficult area which involves so many different things. And of course, the other thing with, with, with um, the tiny houses as well, one of the biggest things that we come into, I can point you towards the, the Royal Incorporation of Architects in Britain, RAAS. You know, they, they write papers on how shoebox Britain shouldn't be happening, new developments, I'm talking about conventional flats and houses here, apartments, are too small and are getting smaller. And of course, when they apply all of that to tiny houses, they, we don't have a leg to stand on because something which is less than 30 square meters is, you know, probably what they would recommend as a, an average bedroom, you know? So it, it does bring up a lot of contentious issues like that, which again, to me, comes back to a lot of these things of saying, but if I chose to live within this space I'm in now, why can I not do that? Right. It, it comes down to who gets to choose how, what is normal and how we live. And, and yeah. I think the tiny house movement is really interesting because it is a movement and so the change is actually coming from from people who are wanting to do this rather than from bureaucracy or government saying like this is how this is how you have to do it where would is the is the planning system in the UK piecemeal like is it different in every every town every municipality uh no but you know it's interesting that it, here in Scotland it is it is different from from in England and Wales. 
indeed, as the law is, its, is itself, we have a different law, a different system of law in Scotland. There are similarities, but, but they're not the same system. Largely, planning laws are the same. I mean, let me give you an example, a simple example. Where this can work is that if you are a householder, or your parents, for example, are householders, they own their home, and they own the garden ground that is surrounding that house. If, if they go out tomorrow and want to buy an RV, as you would call it, a caravan, they can bring that home and park it in their drive, and they don't need permission to do that. It's, it's deemed um, a chattel, a bit of their own goods, their own property, which they can do with as they wish at their leisure, in their leisure. And that's very similar then with a, with a tiny house. If, if one of my clients tows a tiny house home this weekend, parks it in their drive, again, it's generally fine as it stands. The issues then arrive with how you use it. So if you decided to rent that out to someone on Airbnb next week, you've got an immediate change in land use for planning. So it becomes a business and it becomes a, a, a business use. If your son, for example, wanted to live in that caravan in the garden, caravan, tiny house in the garden, then he could do that. He's a member of the household. That's, that's fine also. Um, so there, there are gray areas with all of it in terms of who checks up on this? Can you fly under the radar? I actually interestingly read a blog from someone the other day in Belgium about the way tiny houses were going in Belgium. And the, I've, I've rarely read a bolder, more damning indictment of a system where actually we can't really do this. We're trying to do it, but actually we can't do it. And, and actually their, their draconian law there seemed to say that even if you had a tiny house there, it would be judged as a normal house. If it didn't comply to the building standards of a normal house, you couldn't do it anyway. So. Um, what am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say is, I think we're in a, I think we're in a different situation here in the UK in that um, I do know people who are doing it. There are ways to do it. I'm not holding out an, an amazing beacon of hope there, but I do know people who've done it. There are ways of doing these things because there are gray areas within the system. Where would someone go to research this to find out what these laws are? Well, so, I mean, I, I guess I've, I've done that over my years being interested in that, in that you research planning law, you look at case law, um, there are examples in case law of what people can or can't get away with. I, how can I describe this? It's one of these situations where if you, if you go down the proper route and you go to your local planning authority and say, can I do this? What you do then is you open a wasp's nest in terms of them having to know everything you're doing and why you're doing it. Now, I'm not suggesting people should do the opposite, but I, I know, for example, even just here, at one stage, I wanted to put a polytunnel in on my land, which is actually, I have some agricultural land here as well. So it was what was on there originally before I actually moved here um, there was actually a flower nursery here but i went being being a good upstanding law-abiding citizen i went to my planning department and said i want to put 
a polytunnel there to grow some crops in. And they were very unhelpful. And the upshot of it all was I had to actually point out to them that this was something they they had to give me planning permission for. It wasn't, it didn't even need planning permission. And they accepted that in the end. But what I'm trying to illustrate is that often you're opening a door into a world which I, I've had planning officers say to me, I have a 300 home new development on my desk tomorrow morning. I don't care whether you build a woodshed or not, even if you probably should ask me whether you can do it. Right. So it sounds like it's better to just do your research and know what the law says. I think so. Know that you're doing it, that you're legal, but don't ask because it sounds like that will really Poss- muck up possibly. the process. Possibly. Right. Although we wouldn't, we wouldn't advocate that. To no, you, no, 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 no. Um, but, but, you know, what I would say is if you ask around and if you talk to people, and, and generally when people say to me, how will I ever find a site if I do have a tiny house? So I say what you have to do is you have to think out of the box here. You have to think sideways and, and think where you want to be. Who can you approach? Who can maybe provide that facility for you? Let's just say theoretically that there may be a farmer somewhere with a big farm. And round the back of his barn, there is a PowerPoint. And you could plug in there and be there a couple of years and not trouble anyone. And you can send your post care of his farmhouse and whatever. Let's just say that's a, that's a theoretical possibility. I think if you go out there and you explore, you will find opportunities open up for you. And hopefully, as we, as we start to get this running generally and it becomes more accepted, People will start saying, actually, do you know what? We could have a community piece of land here. I mean, one of my reasons for the nest house originally was I could, before I got into the whole using them for the homeless um, situation at Social Bite, my, my whole idea was that in our area, for example, Ethan, a, an average house price could be, or a, let's say a minimal, a minimal average house price could be £150,000 sterling. For a, for a reasonable little cottage to live in. That's way out of most people's price range. Um, why on earth can't there be a tiny house, which is 40 or 50,000, where younger people can get on the housing ladder? That's a great idea, but unfortunately it falls apart because of the whole land use side of things. And so if you're looking for land to put a house on, you're competing with people in the housing market who want to build a five-bedroom executive house worth 400,000 and therefore they're competing for a plot of land which may be the size of a postage stamp but it the land's going to cost you 150,000 so it's the dynamics of that situation which are very very difficult which is quite depressing really because you know in Scotland we've got so much land we have so much land and and a very low a population of 5 million you know that's half of London in the whole of Scotland and yet the housing prices or the land prices are still quite high. Yeah. And you see the other thing which c- cuts in there is that there is the whole second home phenomenon as well. So Scotland's a beautiful place. And in around the Highlands and Islands, we've, we've got wonderful places that people want to go and stay. And typically they're rural, they're rural communities where there are very few people in a village or a small town. People start buying second homes to use as holiday homes, and people start buying them to run businesses from as letting businesses, etc. And obviously, 
that causes a general price rise in the whole in the whole population. What do the local youngsters do? They they can't get on that housing ladder. They move to bigger cities for work. They move away from their local communities. They deplete their local communities, both in terms of potential brain drain, as well as financially, because they're not there to bring up their kids and you know work through that system. All of that, to me, is answerable. I mean, we. I think you do too. You have a massive housing crisis as well, don't you? At the moment. Yeah, there are. You know, I'm hearing you say all this, and there are so many parallels between. Yeah, between yeah. the two. Yeah, and I mean, we literally every day, every week on the national news here, there is some aspect of of the housing crisis of not enough council houses being built by local authorities. It's a it's a huge it's a huge issue. Now, I'm not. I don't suggest for one minute that tiny houses are the are the answer for a wide swathe of the population, but they can contribute towards that in certain situations. Yeah, they are an answer. Forgive me for ranting on. <laughs> no, that's okay. W- one thing that I like to actually ask all of my guests uh, is. What are two or three resources? So, you know, books or people. Okay. I know you already mentioned a couple. Two or three resources that just helped you along on your tiny house journey that you would say, you know, you've got these are must reads or must must watches for tiny house people. What? What? what, what? Just looking around at my books here and thinking about, I mean, I've mentioned Lloyd Kahn already and the spirit of shelter publications and the books that he's done over the years. They were instrumental. They've been instrumental over the years because I had one of his books years and years and years ago. I think it's dog-eared and worn out and, and, and departed this world by now because it was used so much. But, but that actually just focused on people building um, surface shacks from driftwood and things like that. And just that, to me, that was just the essence that an individual can build something. You, you know, let's talk about Walden for a minute. You know. I mean, we're talking there about a situation of that pioneering attitude of working your way across country as a pioneer in, what are we talking about, 1700s America, you know, building, building log cabins as you go. That, to me, is the absolute essence of tiny houses. And indeed, for me, I think I must have been a pioneer in an earlier life, but, you know, to me, that being close to nature and being within um, that scenario is is my dream scenario, really. Well, nice. Oh, so sorry, I haven't really answered your question. So, um, you know, I guess as well, it has to be the internet now is a big player in all of this. There are people, my own website, I didn't look at that for inspiration, but, you know, somebody may. There's plenty of information on there. But again, worldwide, there are there are lots of resources. There are people, I think you... You have a resource there, don't you, of people looking for self-building information? Yes, I I have a, a guide called Tiny House Decisions that helps people think through all the systems that need to go in a tiny house and make yeah. make those planning and systems decisions and understand the relationships yes. between them. But yeah, there are so many resources, and I, I have a resources page on my site that links out to, to some of my favorite books and courses right. as well. But I, I think I think you just have to be eclectic in that. I think you have to you have to explore and find out what there is. Um, I, I'm I would even suggest that you don't look at tiny houses per se, but but look at a wider 
I guess because I've always been in, interested in the architectural side, you can actually gain a lot from proper architecture as well. And you know, one thing that I think really comes out with all of this is that the tiny house thing, if you go on the hands-on direction with it, that is something which a lot of, and then this is no um, derogatory comment towards architects, but a, a lot of trained architects actually would love to have the practical experience that you as a potential tiny house builder ha can achieve. Because they're, they're taught in classrooms, they're taught in theory. Um, they don't have that background that I had as a furniture maker where you're handling materials and you come to know the heft of a piece of wood and what it will support and what job it will do. Yeah, I'm a great advocate for actually trying things out. <laughs> well, I think that's a great, a great place to leave it. Uh, Jonathan Avery, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. I really enjoyed this conversation. Been an absolute pleasure, Ethan. Really great. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to Jonathan Avery for being a guest on the show. You can find the show notes from today's episode, including lots of photos of Jonathan's gorgeous tiny homes at thetinyhouse.net slash 086. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 086. It's been a while since I've said it, so I'll say it again. You are the reason that I make the Tiny House Lifestyle podcast. I love hearing from my listeners, and I really appreciate when listeners share the show with other people who are interested in tiny houses. There's just a tiny fraction of people who like tiny houses, are interested in the movement, and also listen to podcasts. And we've built up such a great catalog of shows, and this has really become now a library of information for tiny house hopefuls, and it's completely free. So do your friends a favor, pick up their phone and say, hey, have you ever heard of the Tiny House Lifestyle podcast? and subscribe them. Another great way to spread the word about the show is to share your favorite episode on social media. Bonus points if you go over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review for the show. Your reviews help others find the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast and helps us reach more people. Well, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.